0: Thank you. Uh, you are an awesome God, Lord, and we are coming through all you put before us. Um, Lord, I'm rem- reminded of our men's study and, and how we challenge, are challenged to understand that we are yours, yet you still put trials in front of us, Lord, and you are teaching us. And Lord, help us to remember that we are to be thankful in all circumstances, Lord. So thank you in all of these circumstances you've put before us, you are continuing to teach us, Lord, and we need teaching. So now, Lord, as Greg opens the word, teach us, speak to us, speak to our hearts, and and teach each and every one what what we must hear from you and your word, Lord. So speak through, Greg, this morning. Thank you for this place. Thank you for our church, family, and all that goes on here. Thanks for our community and the beauty that we're surrounded by. We are lucky, and we need reminding sometimes, Lord, because we just forget. So forgive us for that, Lord. We are lucky, and you have blessed us, Lord. So thank you for all you've done. Thank you. Again, um, be with Greg as he speaks. In Jesus' name, go with us and keep us safe. Amen.
1: All right, well, welcome here. This morning is going to be a very unusual type of uh, sermon, I guess. Um, If you've been part of our church for any length of time, you know that kind of what we do is uh, more often than not, we just pick a book of the Bible and we just study our way through it. Uh, Last year, we studied through 1 Corinthians. took a break for the summer and answered a few uh, questions about faith, God, um, Christianity, the Bible, uh, whatnot. And then we jumped back into 1 Corinthians and finished it off. And so this year I was thinking, what I should say, at the end of last year, I was thinking, where should we head next? And I I usually have two or three ideas in mind, and I was pretty set on where I was going to go. And then as I started to do some work for... For a seminary class that starts tomorrow, that because I got COVID, I can't go to. But there is no awe. Thank you. Uh, But because I can't go there, uh, not because I can't go there, but because I was studying some of these pre readings and some of the the books that were required, my mind started to go a few different directions. And then I began to have some conversations with a few different people, just randomly kind of out for coffee or someone popping into my office. And, and this idea, which I'll tell you in a minute here, but this idea just began to kind of circulate in my mind, and I couldn't get rid of it. And, and then, as God does when I open the Bible the following few days, uh, in my own personal study, in my own reading, this theme just kept coming up, and this idea just kept coming up. And then I had, a every, every second Wednesday, I meet with a friend of mine over Zoom, and we started talking uh, about this same idea again. And it just was something that just consumed me, and so I just went, I just, we just got to do this. We're, we're going to focus here. And So you can open uh, to the book of Daniel, and I'll explain a little bit of why we're going to be in Daniel over the next while, however long that might be. In some of these conversations, in some of my personal study. This idea of the Old Testament just kept coming to mind in a sense of, and I would say predominantly what's helped me process this in my own mind, is finishing a series from the Bible Project on their podcast called a Paradigm Series. And in that, they focus on several ways in which our modern Western minds typically look at, read, and interpret the Bible. And they challenged... Uh, me and and the rest of the listeners to to think differently and to not try and make the Scripture say what I want it to say with my mindset here and now, but rather to think to whom was this written and to when was it written and how would they, the original hearers, have understood these things. See, while the Bible, you've heard say this lots, while the Bible is written uh, for us, it wasn't written to us. It was written to specific groups of people, to specific churches, and so we need to grasp that and then interpret it through that lens. And so this morning as we study through Daniel, we're actually not going to study through Daniel very much. We're going to study through some context. We're going to study through some history. We're going to look at this with, with a hopefully a better bird's eye view so that we understand where we're going and why there's so much significance in the book of Daniel. The other part of why I got stuck in this idea of Daniel is because the first six chapters are kind of more to do with Daniel's life. And then if you've read through Daniel recently, what are the last half? What's the last half of Daniel about? It's more end timesy stuff. Has anyone had a conversation about end timesy stuff due to COVID? I don't know about you, but I've been consumed with people showing up going, okay, this is the extreme, but this has happened, is the vaccine the Antichrist? Is this the mark of the beast? Right? Like like to the extreme, but then also everywhere along that journey, some very valid, real wonderings and questions. And I've said often through my preaching uh, years that I've avoided some stuff in Daniel, the book of Revelation, some of those things because there's so much imagery and allegory, it's very difficult to know and there's many interpretations. And so I've, I've predominantly focused on the other books of the Bible because I feel like we have a firm foundation there where we can know with more certainty that which what we read. But in that process, I was convicted with this, is I think the reason that some of these, what I perceived, were some good questions but then some very bizarre questions come because our, our view of the end times, it's called our eschatology, I think our eschatology and all our culture is impacted more by things by left behind than by the Bible. And I think that's my fault and other pastors and churches that have not talked about some of these difficult things because I don't have a lot of answers. I have a lot of uh, wonderings. I have a lot of ideas of, of where I think things are headed, but not a lot of certainty. But that doesn't mean that we should be avoiding it and that I should be avoiding it. And so that's why I was convinced we need to go to Daniel. We need to study through Daniel so that as one day we lead to whether, whether we do Revelation next year, whether you do that in your own study, uh, whether you do a Bible study with a group and you, and you end up in that book, that we're informed a little bit more by the Bible as a whole, so that when we get to some of the uncertainties and confusion in revelation, that we have a better biblical basis of understanding and less of our theology is based on things like the Left Behind movie or book series. And again, I'm not trying to throw those authors under the bus. They simply wrote uh, their ideas of, this is an interesting idea, what if the end times looked like this? And then they fleshed out books based on that. They were never saying, here's a theology for how to interpret the end. But I think very many Christians have been deeply impacted by that and see that going, well, how does the Bible relate to this? When the real question we should be asking is, how do our current circumstances relate to what the Bible teaches us? So as I was reading a book on Daniel, this statement was was brought to me. John in the book of Revelation Talks about something. He says this: uh, it, a time, times, and half a time. Anybody know how long that is? Right, and you kind of go, "Well, that's unusual. That's strange." And as I was reading this this commentary on Daniel, the author pointed out that Dan, or sorry, that John, when he's writing the book of Revelation, was tying things back to the book of Daniel and how he was interpreting the book of Daniel was paving the way for how he was writing the book of Revelation. And in my own, I don't know what, I was amazed that I hadn't seen that before, that it wasn't so obvious to me. And the author made this comment. He said, if this is how a biblical author inspired by the Holy Spirit interpreted the book of Daniel, then shouldn't we do the same? And I was deeply convicted by that. A biblical theology of our end times does not need to be completely speculative and based on uncertainties, but can be based on how did authors like John in the book of Revelation look back in Daniel and Ezekiel specifically, and how did they interpret what was happening because they were speaking through the authority of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what's led me to this place. I know that's a huge introduction, but I, need, I needed to state that so that you could hear and see why we've come there. So, then we end up in the book of Daniel, so let's open chapter 1. Now, I actually, you're not going to believe this, but I have a slide. Don't show it yet, Shayla, but I have a slide. I never have slides. I'm really, I'm really excited about this slide. I will tell you, Shayla, when it's time to put it up there. I just want to, like, prime the pump, get you all excited and possibly scared about a slide. So, Daniel 1, let's begin. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiada came king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And that's as far as we're going to get today. Because I think there's so much in that first sentence that the original hearers heard and they knew the context, they knew exactly what was happening, and they knew the implications of that. And I think most of us don't. Because we don't live in that. We live predominantly in this time where we focus more on the New Testament because the New Testament is is more relevant to us, we'll say. But again, my argument is going to be, as we go through the book of Daniel here, is if we don't interpret the Old Testament correctly, we're not going to interpret the New Testament correctly. And so what we're really going to do this morning is not not look at Daniel as much as this is essentially going to be a biblical history class. Anybody taken one of those ever? One, two, was that one and a half? One hand kind of went a little bit up. So I think this is crucial, crucial to us understanding the book of Daniel. And I'm going to tell you why when we get to the end of this. We are going to talk about Daniel specifically for a few moments. But as we go through this history of Israel in general, I hope that it opens up your mind a little bit so that as we start to read through Daniel, you'll see the significance of what he was going through, what he was facing, and why him being faithful is so amazing, so shocking, and should be so encouraging for you and for me in our time that we find ourselves in. So, we're, gonna, we're not going to start at the very, very beginning, because we've talked a lot about this over the, uh, over the last three years. But the people of Israel as a whole, God had called them, he had brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and we've talked lots about this, but while they were going through the wilderness, they kept turning away from God. And God in his grace and his mercy, there was correction sometimes, but he was so merciful, And he showed his grace to them and he called them back to him. And you saw over and over and over again, they would turn back and go, Lord, forgive us for our wickedness and our horrible hard hearts. We want to follow you. And then only, you know, a page later or sometimes even only a paragraph later, we see them turn and follow after other gods, other nations, looking at people going, we want to be more like that. We don't want to be like this. Perhaps you as a Christian have thought at times, man, I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be different. I just want to blend in. I just want to be the same as all my friends. Well, never have God's people been asked to do that. They've been asked to stand out and to live for him. And they had their moments where they did, and then they would turn. And so we're going to remember that pattern. But then now we're going to head into the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8. And so if you want to flip back to there, it'll be on the screen as well. But I encourage you to flip there if you can. There's been a time of judges um, who have called the nation of Israel back to serving the Lord whenever they've strayed. And there's this cycle that continues to happen. And the people of Israel in, in their perceived wisdom think, we know how to deal with this. We know how to fix this problem. And this is where we come to in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So I'm going to read these first nine verses. It says this. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. I don't think I gave you verses 1, 2, and 3, Shay, did I? Okay, let's just go straight to 4 then. So that happened. (laughs) Then all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. See, God was supposed to be Israel's king. They didn't need a man-made image to worship. That's what the other nations were doing. They were to worship the one true God, but in their perceived wisdom, they went, if we just have one spokes figure who's not just a prophet, because a prophet is no longer good enough, a judge, a judge is no longer good enough. If we have a king, then all of our problems will be solved. You know, sometimes it's easy for us to step back and evaluate other people's situations or other nations or other cultures. We see much clearer. And we can look at this and we can go, how would you think following a king would solve anything? History proves that that's not a good place to go. But in that moment, why did they want to do it? Verse 5 says, Give us a king to judge us like who? Like all the nations. One of the translations I read said, give us a king so that we can be like the other nations. They didn't want to stand out. They didn't want to serve God. They just wanted to blend in, and they wanted to do their own thing. They reject God. Well, God says, okay, you can have a king. He tells Samuel, tell them, you can have a king, but if you have a king, here's what's going to happen. You're not going to like it. He's going to rule you. He's going to oppress you. He's going to tax you hard. All these things are going to happen, and you are not going to like any bit of it. So Samuel warns them, as God says, and in verse 19, it says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They won't listen to their prophet and judge any longer. Even when he says, you say you want this. I mean, this is like parenting 101 here, if you've been a parent. You say you want to go there or do that, It's not going to end well. And we know that, and we try and encourage it well, it doesn't really work very often. So God says, let them, let them do this. And so they're given a king who's the first king of the nation of Israel. Saul, why was Saul chosen? Anybody remember? He was good-looking. Literally, that's what the Bible says. He was super tall and super buff. That's the guy we want to follow. Well, if you know anything about Saul, there's some moments of good. and There's a lot of moments of bad. Saul lets power come to him and he, he lets it kind of impact how he thinks and, and what he does. And he gets very consumed with that idea of power. And he doesn't seek God's exaltation anymore. He seeks his own exaltation. So if you ever hear somebody say the Old Testament doesn't apply to us, let's just let that sink in for a moment. Don't we all crave, whether we want to admit it or not, some kind of power? We want control. We want a good name. We want to see us and look at us and go, wow, look at the abilities, the talents, the whatever it might be. We know all of that comes from the flesh and is not good. But yet we fight that. Saul was no different. And he went through some some very difficult things. And eventually God rejects Saul as king. And then he anoints through Samuel. Who does he anoint next? David. David becomes this next in line. Now what's significant to note here is man picks, let's pick Saul, this big buff guy. Let's pick him. And God goes, fine, you can pick him, but he is not who I've chosen. So he rejects Saul and he chooses David and he says, this this is going to be the person who is going to lead you. This is the one who you are going to follow. And so you can flip ahead to 2 Samuel 7 at this point. And what we see here is we call it the Davidic covenant, It's a covenant that God makes with David, a promise to him, and this is central to much of the rest of the Old Testament pointing forwards to the Messiah, pointing to Jesus. So if we read in verse 7, 12 to 17, it says this. God's speaking to David, and he says, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers i will raise up for your off, raise up pardon me i will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body i will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name and i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever i will be to him a father he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity i will discipline him with the rod of man with the stripes of the sons of men but my steadfast love will not depart from him As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. If you read that a few times, that word forever, over and over and over and over, we're really slow to hear it, but hopefully we see what's happening. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all the vision, Nathan spoke to David. So David rules relatively well overall. There are moments where he does the same thing Saul does. He chooses his own pride, his own self. He chooses sin instead of God. But what's very unique and interesting about David is how he crawls back to God in repentance and submission to him. If you read through the Psalms, uh, I've been For almost the last year, I've been reading through uh, a psalm at the end of my reading every day. And so I'm about two and a half times through psalms. And what I notice in the Davidic psalms are this. He is so confident that he is serving God with his whole heart. And that amazes me. That he can stand there and he can say, God, search me. Show me if there's any iniquity in me. I am confident that my heart is clean before you. I don't think there's a day of my life that I could say that. David overall is a wonderful king. And then his next son is going to come and here's this prophecy that we've just read is we call it a dual prophecy it's pointing towards Solomon his son but more importantly it's pointing to who? The one true king. Jesus, the one who will reign what was the word we said forever forever. Your House will be established forever. Your kingdom will be forever. This promise that I will bring a king as I plan to who will rule forever. But it will not be a man. It will be God incarnate. It will be Jesus who comes and who rules. That is the Davidic covenant. And, And through the rest of the Old Testament, we watch and we see that being fleshed out. That in the line of David, the Messiah is coming. And we see these nations these or, or, pardon me, these tribes of Israel believe, sometimes, not believe others. And so this is where, if you flip ahead, just a little bit oh, no, not just a little bit, a lot. First Kings, uh, chapter 12. What we see here is King Solomon starts out really, really well. He follows after God. He's committed to him. Uh, There's the story in the Bible about Solomon going to God and saying, I'm like a child. I have no idea how to reign. Would you give me wisdom? God says you can have anything you want, and he chooses wisdom. And so we see this beautiful picture of Solomon submitting to God, following after him, and for the vast majority of his life, he does so, so well, but in these last days of his life, something changes in his heart that sets the trajectory for all of the nation of Israel all through the rest of the Old Testament. And I want to read this with you. So if you flip to uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, pardon me, 1 Kings chapter 11. Verses 1 to 8 says this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, uh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel. So this is Exodus 34 that God said this. You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you for surely they will turn your hearts away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of his father David was. For Solomon went after Astaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their God see a radical departure from Solomon. He chooses women over God. And so all of these wives come in, and, and, and God had told them, do not do this, and if you do, here's what's going to happen. Well, Solomon does it, and surprise to him, it happens. They start serving all these other gods. Their focus is no longer on the one true God. They've become this polytheistic nation where they're, wh- whoever's the flavor of the month will just build a new temple, we will build a new altar, we will worship all of them just in case. And that won't offend God. Though all through the Old Testament, God says, do not serve other gods. Follow me and me alone because all those other gods will not satisfy. They will not bring you anything because they are nothing. They're just Images of wood and stone. I am the one true living God. Follow after me. Well, as you can imagine, if this is how Solomon's life was ending, then how do you think his next, his son, his the next king, was going to behave? And so as you keep going through, you read about uh, his son Rehoboam, who is... There's no nice way to say this, as wicked as could be. And he chooses, no, we're not going to follow God at all. And so things get rough, and and so this guy named Jeroboam from the northern kingdoms comes down and says to Raboam, look, would you lighten the taxation that your father was putting on us in his final years? It was too much. It was too extreme. We need some relief from that. And so it says in chapter 12 that Rehoboam goes to the people, uh, the wise um, council of his father Solomon. and says, what should I do? And so they say to him, you know what, Rehoboam, if you, if you listen to them and if you lighten this, it'll go well. They will serve. They will follow. They will be part of the nation. Everything will go great. It seems like Okay, let's just do that. But he doesn't like the advice that he's given, and so it says in the text that instead of listening to those trusted advisors, now remember, Solomon was considered the wisest man who ever lived, and not just like hundreds of years later, but in his own lifetime. People, kings and queens from all over the known world would travel just to listen to Solomon speak his proverbs and his wise sayings. So Rehoboam knew this. So the people who counseled Solomon, he rejected, and it says he went and found some that he had grown up with. What are their qualifications? Nothing. But he seeks some who have grown up with them, and they say, you know what? Don't listen to those guys. Instead, tax them so heavily that they cannot escape you. What does that remind you of? Does that not remind you back to Egypt? Should they not remember what that was like? But no, Rehoboam seeks power and control. And so he goes, yeah, this is a great idea. We're going to do this. And so he does that. Well, what happens? The ten northern tribes revolt against. They say, we will not be part of your kingdom any longer. And so, Shayla, if you can throw up a slide here now. And what you'll see on here is you see on the left, one kingdom, and on the right, the other kingdom. So if you just want to scroll down just a little bit, Shay, you can see they're united under Saul and David and Solomon, and then all of a sudden it splits. And as you go through on the, on the left side, that's the nations of Israel, the ten northern tribes, and history teaches us through the Bible how many good kings. So let's scroll through. you got Jeroboam, Nadab, Basha, all the way to the bottom Shay. please. All the way down to Hosea. How many of those blue kings chose to follow God. Any guesses? Zero. One sort of did for a very short period of time. But every single one of those kings did not follow after God and things got worse and worse and idolatry got more and more until the year 722 BC when they were taken into exile as slaves. The same thing has happened that started when they were in Egypt. It's all happened again because they turned away from God and they trusted in themselves. The southern tribe, the yellow here, there's there's a few good kings there. Uh, Not a lot, but there's a few good kings in there um, that follow after God. There's a couple that... Uh, either start and then don't end well or don't start well but end well and there's a few that actually really follow god asa jehoshaphat hezekiah and josiah they followed completely holy after god but then you find out that the rest of the other ones don't but what commentators talk about and this is what really stuck to me in the book of daniel Is As I was reading through that commentary, the people in Jerusalem, so the southern tribes, the the two southern tribes that make up the land of Judah, they were so convinced that the promised Messiah was coming through that Davidic line. And so as long as they stayed faithful to the southern tribes, that it didn't matter how they lived or what they did, but they would be safe. So much to the point that those they started to move closer and closer to the city of Jerusalem that they believed as long as they were in King David's city that nothing bad would happen. And even though in 722, when all the northern kings get raided and then taken off into exile, they go, this will never happen to us. What happens to them? In 586, they're taken off into exile. Shayla, if you can put that slide back up just for one second. And at the bottom here, you have that kind of confusing Jehoiach, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, Jehoiachin. What's going on here? You have a king who served. I'm going to read this so that I don't get this wrong. Jehoiahaz ruled for 17 years. And then his brother, not his son, his brother Jehoiakim ruled for 11 years. Then Zedekiah only for three months, and then it went back to the original King Jehoiakim again. And so it sounds confusing, it looks strange, and you're kind of thinking, what are you doing, God? But as you read through, specifically we get to the point of Daniel, we realize what God is doing is he's keeping that lineage, that faithful promise, the king of kings will come in the line of David, even though you were going to go into exile. Even though your kings are going to be slaughtered, I am going to save this one. And so you have all this kind of brother kingdom things happening. And one goes into exile, but he lives. And that is the son of David, according to that lineage. And you see this all being fleshed out. And so even though all of God's people are completely unfaithful, God is showing, I am faithful. I have promised the Messiah will come through this line. Even though the nation will be torn apart, even though your faith will be in Jerusalem and not in the one true God, I'm going to allow these nations to come and to conquer you and to bring you back into exile. It's just a replaying of slavery in Egypt all over again. It's just a new cycle. Not because God doesn't love his people, but because they continually reject him. and Say, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to serve me instead of you. So let me ask a question. What's changed in the last three or 4,000 years? Not much. We want to serve us. We don't want to serve God. We think we're smart, and we know what should happen, and we know what we should do, and you don't have to look any further than how our government has handled COVID for us to go, man, I'm way smarter than the government. If they had just done it the way that I would have done it, it all would have been over by now. And I hope that when we say things like that, we don't actually mean them. We're just venting. Because there's no way that we're smart enough to do that. We're, God is in control. He's doing his thing. And even though we think we're smart, we need to rest in him and go, God, I trust, despite the circumstances that are happening now, I trust in you that you will do what's faithful. And that's why the book of Daniel is so important to us. Daniel comes along the scene. at this point where there's no longer a nation. They're in exile. They have no hope. Most commentators state that the people believed that God had not been faithful and that the Messiah was no longer coming. They were without hope. But not everybody, and that's the whole point of Daniel, and this is why I spent so much time getting to this point, because this is a crazy thing. Daniel is the only major character in all of the Bible who we don't see any moral failure in. That doesn't mean that Daniel didn't sin. That's not what I'm saying. But the focus of Daniel's life is his perseverance and his steadfast belief that despite the circumstances that exist, God is in control and he will be faithful to serve the one true God. Even though we're not a nation anymore, even though we're not in Jerusalem, even though as far as most of them knew, the line of David had ended. They didn't understand how all this was being taken place. They just knew new king, new king, new king, okay, exile, what's happening. And Daniel was committed that God will be faithful to what he has promised because he is always faithful. And so as we study Daniel over the next months, and as we read these first few chapters, when we read of Daniel's faithfulness amidst circumstances that none of us have gone anything through, we we don't even understand how difficult his life was, and yet how faithfully committed he was to God. This should change our perspective, so it's not just, oh, here's Daniel, and he's faithful to God because he should be, because God's done all these wonderful things. Well, that's maybe true that God has done some wonderful things, but he's living in a time where me or you probably statistically would just abandon God and abandon our faith because there's no hope. Externally speaking, there's nothing to put our hope in. And so if that's you this morning, if you're looking at circumstances going, I don't know how any of this is going to work out. It feels like God has abandoned and left me. What we can learn in the book of Daniel, what we can learn through the Old Testament, is God is faithful even when we are faithless. When we give up on God, God continues to be at work. Even when we can't see it. Even when we're uncertain, and we might think, Man, I deserve, God, would you, you des- I deserve that you would show me what is going on. When the truth of Scripture is that God is so faithful and wants to show us, but we choose our own way instead of His way. We don't even listen to Him. God sent the prophets, and on that slide, if you saw on the right side, were all the different prophets that came to call the nation back to God, and they would refuse. The kings would refuse to repent because they wanted power and authority. The people refused, especially those in Jerusalem, because they went, we live in Jerusalem. We're good. Nothing bad could possibly happen to us. How backwards is that? Their faith was in a city, not in the one true living God who had intervened over and over and over in their history. I know it seems like I'm probably beating a dead horse at this point. But as in the next few weeks we start to read Daniel, we'll see that this book relates to our own lives more than we ever dared believe before. That Daniel has something to teach us because the Bible promises this. I don't know exactly where on the timeline we are as to when Jesus comes back. Nobody does. But I know that today is one day closer than it was to yesterday. So, in the biblical sense, we're in the end times. We're moving towards the end. All I know for certainty is the Bible says it's gonna get worse, it's gonna get harder, and to be a Christian is gonna be more difficult. Persecution will happen more and more and more. And we see that happening all over the world, but then in our time we go, no, 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 this is horrible. Like, like our church is down to one-third capacity. That means that the Antichrist is out to get us, and all these things are happening we can still worship freely when many of the world, many in the world can't and haven't been able to for years. But all of a sudden, this has happened to the West and now we think this is clear it's the end. When there's faithful brothers and sisters all over the world who have been living through stuff like this for many years. So in our own arrogance, we need to get humble. We need to bring ourselves to a point of humility, and realize this is not about us, but it's about the kingdom of God. And the Bible says it's going to get worse. And so we need to prepare for that, not simply only just fight to try and keep the freedoms and rights that we have. And again, I'm not trying to state we shouldn't fight for freedoms. That's not my point. My point is that we shouldn't be surprised when things get worse. We should be prepared for them, and then we should look to people like Daniel and go, we can be a faithful church amidst awful situations. Because others have walked through before and have shown us how to do it. And what's crazier yet, we in the New Testament, we've been given the Holy Spirit. So we have someone who lives in us to help us through any situation that we're facing so that we might bring glory and honor to God. All of these things that happen in the Old Testament, all the things that happen in the New Testament, all the things that happen historically are a cycle that continue to happen, and throughout all the years, a new war happens, a new the Spanish flu happens, whatever it is, and we go, "This is it, this is the end." And our focus need not be there. Our focus need to be how can we honor Christ? How can we celebrate him and declare him to the nations? in such difficulties, in such circumstances that we don't know what to do. Because that's all we know. We don't know when the end is coming. We don't know if that'll come in our lifetime, in the next generation, the next one, and it's a complete waste of time to try and think that. And so rather than being afraid that a plane is going to land and half the people on the earth are going to vanish and their clothes are going to be neatly folded, sorry, that's left behind stuff, rather than think in that context We need to think the time is urgent. The days are lessening. We're closer to Jesus coming back. How are we going to live for him? How are we going to be faithful amidst a generation that wants nothing to do with God? That's what the book of Daniel is about. That's what I'm excited to read. And I hope that it encourages you. Thank you for coming this morning. This has just been a history lesson. I know it's a very strange kind of thing. But I hope that it gives us a proper context. That as we study through it, we'll see Daniel for who Daniel was. We'll see the nation of Israel for who it was. We'll see the Nebuchadnezzar, all these things. It'll make so much more sense to us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for your faithfulness despite our faithlessness. God, we crave power and control and we're so arrogant so much of the time. God, would you humble our hearts and would we submit to you? Would we know that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that none of what's happening now surprises you and and nothing that we're facing right now means we can't worship you? God, as we step towards the end, whatever that looks like, however long that takes, may we remember that we have purpose and meaning and that according to Scripture, the church will continue to grow amidst persecution, amidst very difficult circumstances. And so God, give us the strength to persevere. Give us a sense of urgency that we would want to share your message of salvation with our family and with our friends and with our coworkers. As we read through Daniel, perhaps even on our own in preparation for the coming weeks, would we be encouraged to know that there are faithful men and women in Scripture who have shown us what it means to follow after you despite the circumstance that they find themselves in. So God, for those individuals here this morning who feel like they're at their end, they're overwhelmed, they're stressed out, they don't know how to put one foot in front of the other anymore? Would you strengthen, as Scripture says, would you strengthen their weak knees? Would you pick them up and would you carry them and would you show them that you are still at work in our lives and that you love us more desperately than we could possibly imagine? God, help us to follow you in these days of uncertainty. You are the only the only true king worth following. So give us the faith and the strength and the perseverance to do that in these days ahead. God, thank you for this morning. Go with us now. Amen. Thank you again for coming. It's been a privilege to have you here this morning. I'm excited as we head through this book together and uh, if you have any questions or if you need prayer for anything, as Ernie mentioned, if you have any needs of any kind, uh, please do let us know. We want to be a church that engages our community and that helps so i hope you have a wonderful week and we'll see you again next week oh the decorations if you would like to stay and help debbie would be very happy because all of her comrades have have bailed her today so uh please do consider staying and helping clean up a little bit thank you all have a wonderful week Bye bye